Welcome to Disarming Persuasion, the podcast for sales and business leadership professionals. My name is Dave Rosenberg, and I am the founder and principal at Locked On Leadership, a consulting firm with a mission to replace Thank God It's Friday with Thank God It's Monday. And I'm Ann Bonney, redhead impersonator and an expert in change management and leadership that people want to follow. Okay, Ann. What are we going to talk about today? Let's talk about making like the dichotomy between the need to make plans and be strategic and have a long-term strategy and the need to, (coughs) I hate the word pivot and be flexible and change the plan. Like there's a, there's a challenge there. Is this what we plan for today? We never plan anything. (laughs) That's a good point. So the people who never plan their podcast are going to talk about planning. Yeah, let's do that. That sounds like a plan. (laughs) I think we're planners now. Okay, we broke the cardinal (laughs) rule. We have a plan. Well, but I mean, it, it, it hits me so often. And I mean, the last two and a half years have been a perfect example of that. Where you know we're always pushing to have a strategy and know where we're going and have that vision. So we're all marching there together. And then you know, market conditions or unpredictable things happen and we need to be able to, you know, shift, but do we? And so how do, what are your thoughts on, how do we know? Well, interestingly enough, what I heard is actually sort of two different, two different levels. Okay. So we have, we have a strategic objective and then we develop the tactics we need to achieve that strategic objective. Mm -hmm. And then as we're engaged in these activities, something unexpected happens. And I think unexpected is the perfect word for that because it's something that you didn't factor in in your plan. Otherwise you would just deal with it the way your plan called for. And you now need to make a tactical shift in order to achieve your strategic objective. I mean, but I think there's also the time where you have to make an objective shift as well, well at a higher level. Yes. And that was my point. I said there's two different things at play. Got it. Because there is, what do we do tactically to achieve our strategic objective? And then when is, when do we recognize that our strategy is wrong? And, and you know, case in point, and I'm, I'm going to go back in history a little bit, um, just because the current example, which of course is the war and terror in Afghanistan and Iraq, I think it's just too raw, too new to really understand some of our limitations there. And it's a, it's a perfect case in point of when that happened. But prior to that, in our lifetime, of course, was Vietnam. And my lifetime. You were, when were you born? 73. Your lifetime. Fall of oh, Saigon right. was 75. Sorry. But, but obviously, two-year-old um, uh, Ann Bonnie was too busy playing pirate to know what was going I, on. I, I was too busy changing diapers or being in diapers or whatever. Anyway, sorry, go yeah. ahead. Soiling diapers. Um, yeah. Yes. So, you know, Vietnam, of course, uh, is, is a great example of a failed strategy. And we never shifted that strategy and, and and the strategy simply was that if we deny we we thought that if we just fought this long enough and hard enough that ho chi minh and the north vietnamese would run out of bodies 
it, it literally was that it was it was a game of attrition and, and we thought we'd run out of bodies and of course Ho Chi Minh's strategy was for us to run out of will he recognized that if he could leverage the American population or uh, our, our um, uh, what's a popular thinking that uh, we'd force ourselves out of the war, which is, of course, exactly what happened. We, you know, uh, a decade of soldiers coming back for what, you know, and we got tired of it. So which of those two do you want to tackle first? Um, let's start with the tactical shift piece, the smaller shift to hit the objective that we're sticking with. Let's hit that one first. Okay. Where would you like to go? Um, well, I mean, I, I think that this is an easy piece, you know, and, and, and one of the things, and this is certain personalities have an easier time with this than others, you know, some personality styles want to have a full plan and want to just stick to the plan no matter what. But paying attention to what's working and what's not is important in um, in making those tactical shifts to be able to hit that larger objective. Yeah, and, and that, that's a really good point. You know, and I, you know, as we were talking before we actually went live, uh, you know, I, I mentioned a quote by Dwight Eisenhower, Dwight D. Eisenhower, of course, who, who was a Supreme Allied Commander in Europe during World War II. So uh, for those of you who are not history buffs, he ran the war effort against the Nazis in Europe for all the allied nations. So this was not just the US, but all the allied nations. And he very famously said, uh, in battle, I found that planning is indispensable, but plan or, or yeah, planning is indispensable, but plans are useless, right? The act of planning is really critical. But once you mm -hmm. do that, you cannot be married to those plans. And one of the things that I recommend to my clients all the time as they set out their annual plans, you know, we do those annual meetings and most a lot of companies do that where they set out, this is what we want to achieve. And here's how we think we're going to achieve that is that you establish tripwires along the way. That's what my term for them, right? These are um, events that either you must achieve or if you fail to achieve will then cause a certain other thing to happen and maybe a reevaluation of your tactics maybe one of those things you know if if halfway through the year we haven't hit half our goals if our plan is that we're going to do it all in the front you know evenly right because there's all sorts of things about that but at any rate there's some sort of tripwire that you go oh okay you know what we need to re revisit this yeah and and i love that planning being important, even though we understand that the plan is probably not going to be where we go because we've thought about all those pieces. And like you said, created those tripwires, created those milestones so that we know how we're making progress and milestones or tripwires are also an, a great opportunity to have organized reassessment. Um, and that's one of the things that we talk when we talk about smarter goals I call them smarter because there's that that evaluation and revision piece is the er at the end of that. And I think that that thinking about it, planning it, thinking it all through, coming up with those tripwires and then also coming up with those milestones, knowing you're making progress or those pieces to be able to say this is working or let's reevaluate it because it's not. Then we're able to start to say, OK, now what do we need to do going forward? Yeah, and this is really critical from a persuasion perspective because I, 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 you know, think about it. If we get so married to our plans that we are inflexible, 
then when we talk to people about them, it's going to be a tougher sell, especially if there's history there. It becomes a tougher sell. It's like, oh, here's Dave again. He's got this crazy harebrained idea. And when it when things go haywire, he's not going to want to change. And we're just going to, you know, spin our wheels doing all this stuff that we know is not going to work once it's obvious. Or the other way around, here comes Anne, who changes everything all the time. We always have a plan, and she's going to change it. Um, so depending on the team and the personalities you have on the team, you could get either side of that, um, which I've always found that when I'm presenting a plan, um, I'll always say, as we go, we have, like you said, these tripwires, these milestones, these different times where we're going to reassess, and we may need to change the plan so I can get those people ready for that dance, because um, this is what I call it in my keynote, is dancing in the discomfort zone, because you're essentially saying, I don't know if this is going to work, but we're going to do a few steps, see what happens, and then we might need to go in a different direction. Yeah, you have to, you know, again, one of those paradoxes in life, you have to be open to the fact that you're going to plan for every eventuality, and you're going to not be able to plan for every eventuality, right? right. It's really, you, you plan for every eventuality you can think of, and that's the caveat. Exactly. And it's understanding that there's going to be those ones that put us in that place where we're like, wait, we don't have control. We don't know what's going on. And we always want to know what's going on and be in control. But the fact is that's not <laughs> reality. <laughs> yeah. You know, in the military, we have several pithy sayings to encapsulate this. No the, way. Really? I know, pithy? Hard to believe. Yeah. I know. I, <laughs> yeah. You know, it, uh, you know uh, uh, ba uh, battle plan never survives contact with the enemy. Right. Or... Combat is the ultimate uh, democracy and the enemy gets a vote. Mm. Right. And, you know, people often liken uh, combat and business. You know, Sun Tzu, The Art of War is is an excellent business book. Mm -hmm. It really is if you interpret it under those conditions. And so if you think of the market as not necessarily the enemy, right, but the, the market as a whole, right, they have their own ideas. Right. Mm. You have your ideas and then they have their ideas and the companies that win are the ones that are adaptable. Totally. And the ones who learn from the past, which I think is why, you know, the sort of rehashing of military errors and military, you know, what worked and what didn't. And that whole debrief is super important in this process because we may not in the moment see the where we should be pivoting and where we should be shifting. But as we debrief in hindsight, we can see these things. And while we might be like, well, crap, we should have done this. Great. Okay. Let's know that for next time. And this is how organizations get better and better at this tactical shifting thing so that they can, you know, get better as they go. Yeah. You know, you're hitting on a really valuable point. Planning is a skill. Mm -hmm. So not only, you know, they say, Fail to plan, plan to fail, you know, they're one of those trite, boring sayings that are also true. Mm -hmm. um, the other part of that is when you plan, you get better at planning and you get better at finding those little uh, unintended consequences that you may not have perceived earlier on, you know, because you have more experience and you have that value of hindsight, which you were just referring to. And not only do you as a person get better at planning and debrief and learning, but when you do this with your whole team, then not only is it 
you get more brains in there and more perspectives all coming in and a diversity of opinion. But then you also have the that learning together and that um, that ability to persuade when change needs to happen in the future, because everybody was there. Hey, you remember that last time this happened? Maybe we want to think about that, too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really mean organizational skill more than I mean, it's an individual sure. skill as well. But I'm, I'm referring yeah, in, in this mm -hmm. context as an organizational skill. And what so what happens when you get ready to pivot you so you you hit one of those milestones one of those tripwires um, and this applies strategically or tactically so you know we started off saying well there's you know sometimes you have to completely think a new strategy and sometimes you just need to think of new tactics to achieve your strategic goals irrespective of which of those scenarios it is when you when you come to that realization developing the next plan that you're going to deviate from um, Right. Developing an X plan is easier because you have the experience doing it. Right. You know, and you can do it on the fly, which is, you know, that's that's more tactical. Right. That's, mm -hmm. you know, but being able to change plans on the fly that that's if you're that person in your organization that when the stuff hits the fan, you're able to keep your head about you and go, OK, here's how we're going to do it. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. This is let's focus on what's important. And here's how we're going to recover. Oh, my God, your career is set. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because that is that ability to make the most of the current amount of information. And this is something so many companies and I'm trying to remember the word. The Japanese word is Kaizen, which means constant improvement and constant mm -hmm. change. Um, Agile is a huge thing going on in organizations to try to make everything, again, the ability to shift and change. And that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Well, I, you know, so Agile is actually a, a interesting developed in through software developers. It's, it's applicable elsewhere. And that's more about actually having less of a plan, less of a Gantt chart, the, the whole Agile tech uh, um, approach to things, because you're you're actually as a team bidding on what projects you want to do based on a perceived degree of difficulty. And so you actually end up getting more done because you develop what's called a team velocity and all the projects get done, but not necessarily in some pre-planned order. So it's, it's actually a, a more organic way of planning, but I think Kaizen's a, a much better way. Uh, you know, when you talk about learning about how you could do things better, um, because it is continuous, small improvements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And constantly being on the lookout for factors that are, make our plan or our thoughts no longer relevant. Right. And then also giving yourself those milestones, you know, you, you along the way, um, without making them too onerous to start, you know, so, you know, like safety is a very, you know, in, in, in lean. And so Kaizen became lean, of course, that's really, that's what we call it now, but it all stems from Kaizen. And, you know, so lean practitioners all the time, you know, they, they have their uh, SQ dip charts they put up there in the S safety and, um, you know, they're measuring safety because they don't want manufacturing to get so fast and it's dangerous because then things break down not just people but you know everything falls apart as well there's a lot of costs etc associated with but you don't just go like day one i'm going to be 100 percent no accidents if you're at if you're at 85 percent accidents you can't go right to 100 right so you go let's just strive for 90 and then 92 and then 94 or whatever it might be you know and that that's the value there um but we kind of digress from just the whole you know being flexible so what do you think keeps people 
from recognizing they have to deviate from a plan? Well, it's the unknown. It's I want to have a plan ready. And it's the whole like being resistant to change um, and and the, uh, the unknown piece and how scary that is not knowing exactly what's going to happen. But as we all know from, you know, the pandemic, the we all only have a secure a, a illusion of control and an illusion of knowns when in reality that they're not there. But I think that's what makes people so, you know, and we've been told so often that we need to be strategic and we need to have a plan without the understanding that the plan is going to change and the plan is useless once we, we start getting into battle. I think that's a big part of it. I think there's another factor, though, which sits more on the emotional intelligence side of the house, which is really ego. You know, you get married to the plan. We go, we go, I was part of developing it or it's my, you know, I worked for a company where, you know, the leadership had to come up with all the plans, which, you know, it wasn't, that's why I worked for them, right? I don't continue. Um, but, you know, that's an athlete to me just because, you know, I know even if I am the smartest guy in the room and I'm not, but even if I was, that doesn't mean I'm the most knowledgeable guy in the room. And, you know, bringing everybody else's knowledge together, you come up with a much better plan that factors in many, many, many more things than I could ever conceive of. But that's what they wanted to do. And then they would get married to it because it's their plan. They have they have ownership and they're the senior managers. So, you know, nobody can. And that's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. Yep. So how do we how do we avoid that? I mean, the first thing that comes into my head is that if we're making these plans together as a team, it's a lot easier to pivot as a team. Yes, we have pride in it as a team, but we've got more perspectives, more opinions, and uh, you know all that engaged in the shift if it needs to happen. Yeah, and then uh, and we're talking specifically about tactical shifts now, not strategic ones, because strategic shifts is a whole diff slightly different conversation. But on tactical shifts, you got to keep you know keep your eye on the prize. If you're not getting to your strategic goal, right? And so if if you're being rewarded internally, your your personal reward system is following the plan, right? That could lead you down a primrose path. If your personal reward system is achieving the strategic objective, then you'll throw that plan out in a heartbeat because it's going the wrong direction. There. Well, and that that is such an important piece to constantly be asking, does this get us where we need to go in the most efficient and effective way possible? Does yeah. this get us where we need to go? Yeah. Now, strategic plans, that's a whole nother ballgame. That's, I mean, that, that requires a bit of uh, uh, prognostication and crystal ball, you know, that, and, and, you know, case in point is, and you do, you are old enough to remember these two companies I'm about to discuss, one of which is still in business. That's Netflix. I totally and, wrote that down on my thing. Netflix right there. Right. And versus, and who, who am I going to contrast them with? Blockbuster. You got it. Right. <laughs> See, I didn't have a plan, but like we're thinking the same. No, it's totally true. Right. A, a market shift from the retail to the mail order to the online streaming with the change in the, um, in the, so the, what's happening out in the world. Right. This is, again, that goes back to, you know, combat, the, the enemy has a vote. And in this case, the enemy was the marketplace and new technology, disruptive technology, streaming as bandwidth became more available. And I remember when Netflix first uh, spun off Redbox, mm -hmm. right? And, and I thought, are they idiots? 
Nobody's going to sit in front of their computer and watch a movie. Right? I thought but, the same thing. <laughs> well, who, who are the idiots, right? You know, I've been an my... idiot a lot. I thought CDs were never going to take off either. I was like, Psh, we're never getting away from cassettes. Yeah. That's this is why we don't do a prediction podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we could do a prediction podcast, and if people just did the opposite of what we predicted, they'd be wealthy as hell. It would be terrible and hilarious, and perhaps we should. <laughs> yeah, we'll call it the George Costanza podcast. <laughs> just do the opposite. We'll be there. Of what we say. So yeah. what were you going to say about Netflix and Blockbuster, though? Well, I think you you nailed it, right? It's 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 an old story, right? And uh, Both of them, of course, for those of you who don't remember, both of them were video. So back in the day when we could... Didn't have to go to the theater, right? It started with the VHS tapes and beta. Beta. Beta, right. And, and uh, Wasn't there like a record before that? I remember some people having like a, what was that thing called? Oh, anyway, not Blu-ray, but like way before like 70s Blu-ray. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there was some, maybe there's some sort of laser disc that was really, it, it was the precursor to, to DVDs. Yeah, but it yeah. was earlier. It was pre-cassette. Anyway, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Beta. Yeah, and super expensive or something. Yeah, yeah, right. So the first thing that was marketable to mass marketable, of course, was, was the, the tapes, whether it was beta or VHS. And uh, VHS won that war. I, I don't know enough to know why, right? And so we would go down to the corner store and, you know, they'd have like 10 copies of, uh, uh, you know, Top movies. Gun. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and you're hoping the one that you wanted was in and, you know, and, and so they would start off as mom and pops, and then a couple of the heavy hitters came around. Blockbuster and Netflix were the two really Did big... Netflix ever have retail? They just had the mail order, right? No, they had, I think they had storefronts. Oh, okay. I, I do, I think, pretty sure they had storefronts. But yeah, they, they did go to mail order, right? So all of a sudden, it's like you didn't have to get your lazy stone butt out of your chair. You just had to plan ahead. And what a lot of us, of course, did was just order two and three movies at a time. You know, and yep, so just that, keep them in rotation. Right. And I was pretty prescient of them, right, to recognize the whole mail order thing, um, mm -hmm. a precursor to, to, to what, you know, Amazon-ish type yeah. stuff. But but like like I started to say earlier, they, you know, DVDs came out and so everything moved off of tape. And it was, of course, it was cheaper for them to mail. And then they decided to just, we're going to put these kiosks up, this we're going to spin off this business. And I'm like, nobody's sitting in front of their computer. And then, of course, Blockbuster, they stayed the course. And yeah. 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 And it was well, the same. But, so, so you're saying there was a strategic objective. And I would disagree with that, though. Well, from a Netflix person, just talk about Netflix and the transition from mail to streaming basically that wasn't really a shift in their strategic objective because their strategic objective i imagine was to be the number one video source movie source for at-home movie viewing and all they were changing was the tactics and how they got us to use their service whether it's mail order or streaming um you know i mean this becomes a really you really want to disagree right now, but you know I'm right. There's an argument to be made that, you know, is this a tactic or is this a strategy, right? Or is their objective, their strategic objective was to be the dominant vi video source. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think I can agree with that. And then their 
that was their strategic objective. Their strategy to do that was to leverage mail order. Mm -hmm. Then they changed their strategy to, to become a streaming source. So they changed our strategies, which necessitated a change in tactics. How do you deliver? So you just added a third layer so that you could argue with me. Not so I could argue with you because you have a strategic <laughs> objective. You have strategies to achieve, right? Which is an overarching strategy. And then you have the tactics, right? So, you know, uh, you know, the, the tactics are, the, the tactics might be like an Amazonian tactic for, for mail order fulfillment is to have fulfillment houses at every major city or even, you know, so they, they can put I, I don't know what truck and get it to you within a couple hours, which freaks right, me out still. Right. So that was a tactical decision for them to get their own fleet, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and yeah. And so, but again, I think we're splitting hairs, the, you know, which I don't really have enough to split. You've got plenty though. So, you know, I do, okay. I, I could split them all and then I'd have twice as much, but I mean, so what are your, some of your thoughts on significant, and I'm trying to think of a off the top of my head thing where a company made a 180 degree shift uh, in their company objectives, like the main objective, um, well, I mean, Under Armour is a good example. They, they for a while, were going to have the objective to go into technology. And they were going to try to, you know, all the workout tracking apps and heart rate monitor stuff and like all the different technological things that would make athletes better. Um, and they started acquiring companies and, you know, to hit that objective. And then finally they realized, wow, this is way too much work to create all of this when there are all these other companies that do that exclusively. And they said, we are ditching this objective. As far as I understand it, we're ditching this objective because it does, it, it isn't what we thought it was going to be. And we're going to shift and focus on the re the things that are already going well for us. Well, I mean, I think what, and I don't know what um, Jeff Bezos plan was from day one. But I think Amazon's a great example of recognizing strategic shifts that work, right? So, you know, he started off in his garage, you know, and he was selling used books, used books. And I, I, I remember that going like, hmm, I don't know, I kind of like going to bookstore. I've been a you know, big reader since I was like six years old. I like perusing and, you know, how am I going to do that online, you know? But there was also a convenience as the selection got better and bigger. And then he got good at that and, and, and was able to pick up new books and then recognized, and again, I don't know this is the exact order, this is my inference, um, but, but recognize, wait a second, you know, I've got a platform here for doing online sales. That's what I'm really good at. And so his strategy then became online sales. As he developed that further, he realized that he had to have some strong back-end uh, IT stuff and next AWS, Amazon Web Service, because he needed that for Amazon, came into being and started leveraging that for other things, right? So he kept seeing these strategic opportunities to take something he had to be good at. And this is the difference, I think, between his story and um, the story for Under Armour, because what Bezos did was take... Uh, uh, skills that he needed to be good at to meet his core objective at that time 
and then looked for other opportunities to leverage a skill set he had, as opposed to taking a market that I already am in and look for other opportunities that require a different skill set, developing technology to service that market, right? It's two different mindset approaches there. Mm-hmm. I'm making this shit up as I go. How am I doing? So, so what are your thoughts on when to know to make those big shifts and decide to abandon, you know, a major objective because this isn't working? And I think, well, I mean, you know, again, I think some ahead. of what we discussed already having those milestones and you need exactly. to be able to evaluate um, honestly what's going on. Right. And, and you know, one of, the, one of the great techniques for that is, you know, what if, so our, our, our mutual friend, Mike Rayburn, you know, uh, that's his big thing. And you know, so, okay. What if I had everything, what, what would it look like if I had everything I needed and then be honest with yourself, can I get there from here? You know, and again, I imagine at Under Armour, it was like, all right, what if I actually was able to do all this? What would it look like? And then you go, okay, well, I, I need, you know, really smart technologists and, you know, people developing all these other skills that we're not really good at and I can develop them. And then do I want to, right? Oh, you know, I, I let me give you a smaller much less obvious example, but I think it'll, it'll hopefully ring true. So where I'm taking flying lessons and the, the fixed base operator I'm flying out of, uh, it's a place called Chuck Hall Aviation. Now Chuck doesn't own it anymore. Chuck's 91, still flying. Um, yeah, uh, but he sold it. And the gentleman he sold it to owns a sizable chain of pet food stores. And I was talking to him about a month ago. And I mean like 25 pets food stores in the Southwest here. So we're talking, you know, some, he's doing well. And, and he bought it on a lark because he's an aviation nut. He has his own plane and he has his own jet. He flies himself. He doesn't have, he's not one of these guys that says a pilot. He, he flies his jet, you know, think Tony Stark almost, you know, um, <laughs> not a billionaire, but you know, but he's doing pretty well. Yeah. And, He's like, and I said to him in our conversation, I'm like, wow. So, cause he was talking about things he needed to do at the FBL. And he's like, he's like, yeah, I need somebody who can be innovative and who can do this and that and all these things. I'm like, yo, it sounds like you need a general manager. He goes, yeah, I can't really afford a general manager. I'm like, wow, it sounds like when you had your first store. And I didn't know him back then, but I know what it's like to have that first store and what it takes to get from one to 25, which is about where he is now. And he like stopped. He's like, yeah, it really is, you know? So this was, I don't know what he's going to do with it, but this is an evaluation point. Like if, if he was one of my clients and he's not, he's an acquaintance, but if he was one of my clients, I would say, right, so this is where you're at. You know, you, you've got a business that's not making money right now or is breaking even. I don't know exactly where it is. So I'm not access, but it's, you know, it's in that, like, you know, almost a hobby place. Mm-hmm. And do you want to put the time, energy and effort into making this thing profitable? Cause you, you kind of bought it on a lark. Cause you like aviation. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if that helps. And I think it just drives home the, the point that in any execution of any plan, strategy, objective, the, those milestones, those tripwires, those moments of reflection to stop and say, is this still working? And that takes, like you said, putting the ego aside for a minute 
having that humble approach to say, is this still working? Is this still getting us what we want it to do? Um, or should we put it on the altar as our coach Michelle says? You know, and I think this is why board of directors frequently have investors and non-investors on the board. Mm. Right? You want people who have a stake in the business, but you also want some people who don't have that emotional attachment. Right. Yep. Who don't have skin in the game yeah. and, and can't see this giant payoff that they're like, I'm waiting for the payoff. It's like, yeah, but it's never going to come, you know? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I think we've hit our strategic objective today. I believe we did. Whether we hit our tactics or not, we got there to the, in the end. Yeah. Well, I didn't step on any tax, did you? Uh, I didn't get up off my chair. Oh, good. Good. Because it's painful. <laughs> I didn't trip any wires either, which is good. <laughs> yeah, it's not pretty when that happens. Woo! Stuff everywhere. All right. Well, unless you got something else to add. I think we're good, y'all. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. That concludes another episode of Disarming Persuasion. This is Dave Rosenberg, and you can find my website at LockedOnLeadership.com. And this is Ann Bonnie at YourChangeSpeaker.com. Remember, if they fail to make a decision, you failed to disarm them.